Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. And I'm really excited to be with all of you today and, um, and just to come into the courts of Jesus, to come into his presence and to worship together. Uh, it is a real a gift for me to be able to, uh, to do that in, in this awesome space at this, this, uh, this crucial, this really unique season of all of our lives. Uh, many of you are going... Uh, are, are coming into a new season, into a new place, uh, and you're negotiating a lot of transitions. Some of you, whether it be school or new grades or new jobs or new places, new faces, uh, new people, uh, whatever it is, there's, there's, life is full of transitions for, for all of us. And um, one of the things that I did when I was, uh, when I was in sixth grade, my uh, my teacher, uh, well, I guess all of the teachers of the school where I was, they each, um, they came together and they picked four of us out of about a hundred kids in the sixth grade to uh, enter into a training program for peer mediation, to become peer mediators. And our job was to help people with their problems. Basically, when there was, a, when there was arguments in the school, uh, our job, they would come to us first and kind of trying to getting us the chance to help people talk through their problems. And so we, we had a training. Uh, we went to George Mason University for an entire day, which was cool because we got to get out of school, but also because we had some really great training and how to be a peer mediator. And one of the things I did in that uh, training, one of the things I remember so well is they always, they, uh, they, they said, when in doubt, what you want to get to people who are who are having an argument, who are having uh, uh, problems negotiating their their disagreements and their arguments, uh, you want to get them at the very least to agree to disagree. So everyone say that with me: agree to disagree, right? So uh, you all don't have to actually do that now, just to be clear. But um, one of the one of the things that uh, this was like. This is so ingrained in me because they would always say, "Remember, when in doubt, agree to disagree," and and um, and it's it is good because you know at, at the very least at that point you're not actively arguing. Um, but the problem is with agreeing to disagree is that there's not. It's actually kind of a, a bit disappointing if you think about it. It's not real resolution. It's not real reconciliation. It's just a cessation of arguing. It's just there's no more back and forth. Agreeing to disagree, while effective in, in, in that sense, uh, it doesn't really do what we wanted ultimately with mediation, which is to come together, to bring people together, uh, and to, yeah, to see them, uh, to see whatever their argument is, to, to really, uh, to build their relationship stronger rather than seeing it, uh, seeing it continue to suffer. In our passage today, in Hebrews 12, we see this exact same uh, term, mediator, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And I cannot tell you how, uh, how different this term is in terms of what Jesus has done 
um, it is such an, a stark difference from this idea of, of agreeing to disagree. Jesus, in fact, as the mediator of a new covenant, he didn't just come between those two people and say, hey, let's just stop your fighting. No, what he did is he came between us and God and reconciled us to him through the blood of his cross. He brought us together. He brought us together. He took us out of an old covenant, an old system that wasn't strong enough, that we constantly had to continue to atone for our sins. And he said, no, uh, not only will I cease your argument, but as your mediator, I will become your argument. I will take all of your pain and strife on me on the cross. And I, in fact, will satisfy this and bring you together to reconcile you forever. Far more than agreeing to disagree, I will make you one with your maker and make you truly human in the manner you're meant to be. So I ask you now to, to pray with me uh, as we go to look at this passage and see what it means for us that Jesus is our mediator of this new covenant. Father, cleanse the thoughts of my uh, hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Help, help me to speak your words after you. May the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. In fact, what the book of Hebrews says earlier is that this, this new covenant, it's a new ministry, and it's a better ministry. It says in Hebrews 8. And, and there is only one mediator, only one who comes between God and men. That is Jesus himself. He is the go-between. He, he's the one who brings us together with Christ. In the Old Testament, under the Old Testament, we see in these first uh, four verses of this passage that the Israelites, when given the opportunity to come to God in Exodus 19, when they, when they saw God, they shrank back from the test. They, they, they shrank back from the task of being in fellowship with God. God said to come to Mount Sinai after the sound of a trumpet blast came from his glorious mountain. And the problem was they resisted. They held back. It says this in Exodus 19, for on the third day, the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of the people and you shall set limits for the people all around. And not go to the mountain or even touch the edge, whether beast or man, he certainly will not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to that mountain. And later it says this, that on that third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very long trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain 
the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. You see, what happened on Mount Sinai that day is that Jesus, is that God gave to Moses the Ten Commandments. And he was calling the people of Israel to come into his presence. And they were, it, is, it was terrifying. It was so threatening that they couldn't even come into his presence unless they were perfectly cleansed, unless they had been consecrated so perfectly. They had to continue in that manner and and be perfectly holy. Otherwise, they would be undone. They could not even come near the mountain until God said it was okay. They could not even touch it, not a man or a beast, or else they would be killed They would be totally undone. And this picture that the author of Hebrews is using from Mount Sinai is contrasted with this picture of Mount Zion in these next four verses. You see, what the author is communicating here is that this this picture of that what we see of the Israelites, that they, um, they are... They're not able to go into the presence of God. So notice in the passage it says, for you have not come to what may be touched. And then it's summarizing this passage from Exodus. You you haven't come into what may be touched. But uh, later in verse 21 it says, uh, excuse me, in, in verse 22 it says, but you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Today, what you've come and what you've done in coming here to church, you've come to a spiritual engagement with the living God. You didn't just come, well, actually, I'm sure many of you, like me, kind of came a little bit sleepy and were drinking your coffee uh, on the way, or perhaps, you know, aren't necessarily feeling your most spiritually engaged you've ever been in, in, um, in church. And, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you, you have to come fully ready. I'm saying what you've done today in coming to this gathering of, of 40 or, or so people is you've come into the courts of the living God. And that's what the author is saying. Where the Israelites weren't able to come, where they shrank from that task because it was too terrible that in Christ, he has mediated this new covenant, mediated it in his very, in the death of, of, of him in the flesh so that we have come today to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering where they were met with terrible fire and consuming darkness and terror such that they shrank back. So we press in to the presence of God, a loving God who invites us in invites us to come and to receive from him the grace that he has for us in Jesus. We're met with a feast, an assembly, a myriad angels. I can just imagine what Mount Zion looks like. I can just imagine what it must be like to watch 
that, that holy train of people coming up the mountain and into that assembly. You see, uh, what we see here um, in this contrast, I, I noticed two specific things. One, what we see in, in, the, um, in the new covenant expressed here on going to Mount Zion and into the gathering of these people is that it's a spiritual engagement. So, so this is how the new covenant is better than the old covenant. What the old covenant did is the old covenant was a physical one. The, the people, uh, they were expecting, uh, a, a, uh, the Israelites were expecting a temporal, a, a temporal, a physical redemption. That someone would come and reestablish Israel's rule. But, but in the new covenant, we have a spiritual Mount Zion. We have a spiritual engagement with God, with the living God. And the whole company of those perfected in his presence in heaven for all time. And God himself is there. And this assembly of the firstborn enthroned in heaven. And Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant. To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the second thing I notice in this is that this is a living, this is a living covenant, a living covenant. It's, it's full of, uh, it's not something, it's not full of death and destruction, terror and anger. But in fact, it is full of grace and mercy and specifically uh, what we see here in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, that God himself is alive in this new covenant, in this city that we are invited into more fully and more completely, that we do not hold back, that we do not need to wait until we're perfect, but instead we come as we are. So, so I can, I can uh, anticipate the question. So if this is a spiritual living covenant, a new covenant that Jesus has established in himself, so what? In a sense, um, if, if this is a spiritual reality, what difference does that actually make in our lives here and now? Aside from our anticipation of of, of going to this spiritual realm, this spiritual heavenliness in, uh, in, the, in the long run, what, what difference does it make right now? Well, what I see is that the new covenant is so freeing. It's so freeing because in Jesus' sprinkled blood, he gives us a new legacy. He gives us a new promise. See, the covenant... It always has to be made with blood. The, the author of Hebrews says this um, in Hebrews 9, that, that blood is required of any covenant. And in what, he, uh, what the author is doing is the, the author is contrasting the blood of the old covenant of sacrificed animals with Christ's own blood shed on the cross. Christ's blood is better than the blood of 
of any sacrifice. And in fact, what the author communicates specifically is that the sprinkled blood that speaks, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where Abel's blood called for retribution, Christ's blood calls for rest. Where Abel's blood shed by the hand of his own brother, Cain, where it brought about a lineage of division and discord in his family and in humankind, Christ's blood brings unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. You see, what, what we see here is that the term that we're all prone to use, I'm sure you've used it once uh, or, or twice in your own life, if not physically, at least in your heart, to say, well, there's nothing I can do about X because I, it's in my blood. It's in my, my nature. I, I sort of like, whatever the thing may be, whether it's... Uh, for me, this is, uh, this is I, I have a very rich uh, uh, family history with, um, with, with uh, servants. I, my, my parents are both such hearty servants, and you, any, anybody would know uh, that about them, just like being in their presence for like 15 minutes. And they gave that to all of their kids, me and my two sisters. Um, and, and that's really great, and we, wanna, we cherish that gift that, that they enriched us, they gave us the gift and desire to serve others. But what they also uh, gave us is uh, a, a certain, within our, the context of our family systems, a tendency for us to shrink back from conversations or dealing with, um, we would just agree, if you will, agree to disagree without ever actually talking about the thing in the first place. Um, which, if you're uh, keeping score at home, not only are you not actually coming to an agreement, uh, but it, it causes problems down the line, if you will. Um, and, and it would be so easy for me to say, well, that's my nature. This is in my blood. This is how we did it. This is how my family operated. This is how we, how we go. But that's not what Jesus is saying to here, and that's not what the author's Offering us, he's offering us a new way. The new covenant actually says, No, that's not your destiny. In fact, I don't even speak in that. I, I give you myself as your, your destiny. I give you myself. And no longer do we need to assume that where we come from, who our parents are, or what, what money we have, or, or who, who we're networked with properly, or, or what our education is, or what our job is, or what anxieties, or depression, or anger, or anything that is part of that old way. It's no longer has the last word. In fact, what's in our blood is in the blood of Jesus, that we are part of his children and we come to him to know him. We instead come to the cross of Christ and call upon God's love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and shed his blood so that we may be made clean. So how do, how do we do this? 
how do we sprinkle, how, how do we, how do we come? How are, how are we able to continue to operate in, in our lives when the temptations come to relate more to the blood of Abel, to the, to the legacy of our lives that speaks so loudly and clearly when it's a, a harder for us to hear and discern where the blood of Jesus is speaking a new story in our lives. One of the things, and just this, this is the one um, practical piece um, that I'll offer, is um, we see this each and every week when we come to the table. See, communion, uh, in, instead of merely taking away the messiness of our lives, the, the, um, the uh, oftentimes the, the confusing parts of our, our lives, the, the pain and the suffering that we experience, Jesus redeems it and transforms it. Okay, so when we come to the table, we say, bring your gifts, offering your gifts, and we bring forward the water, and we offer what? We literally offer bread and a bit of wine and a bit of water. And what Jesus is doing is he, he takes those and he makes, gives us back a gift. He doesn't just take them, but he comes and he gives it right back to us as the gift of himself in the communion. And we take of the bread that's become his body, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, and the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. This nourishes us, and there's something that we're meant to bring to this. We come to him in sin, we come to him in shame, we come to Jesus, weak and heavy burdened and tired and lonely, fearful and confused, we come and he says, welcome. Welcome, my child. We ask for forgiveness and he gives it abundantly and says, ask all the more. We ask for a bit of bread and a sip of drink and he delights in bringing us into the fullness of the feast of heavenly delights far greater than we can ask or imagine. As we delight in his loving kindness, instead of holding back and saying, I have to give it to many people, he says, ask for so much more. William Gurnall, uh, an Anglican priest from the 17th century, said it this way, how can you fret when you are wrapped in his covenant? Your heavenly father is so eager to care for you, that while you are timidly asking for a nibble of peace and joy, he is longing for you to open your mouth wide so we can fill it with all the more often you ask, the better. The more you ask for, the more he welcomes you in. In the Eucharist, we are strengthened in our faith, and we're, we place our attention no longer on ourselves, but on Christ himself, receiving from him the gifts of God for the people of God. And at this supper, we are no longer central, but Christ himself is. He is the hero. He is the one who gives us uh, 
gives us the fullness of these terrifying promises of God with the full assurance of his love toward us. As we come to the table now, as we continue to worship the Lord, I want you to think of it. What is it that you are bringing to the table today? As we offer this bit of wine and bread and water, I I invite you so too to offer yourselves fully and completely once again afresh and anew and perhaps in in a newer and a greater way than ever before. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of yourself, for your presence here today. We bless you and we set ourselves before you. We worship you in spirit and in truth and ask for you to give us everything we need according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.